turnarounds in the industry can be as long as a year to get records made. A hundred records could take you one year to get, right? So if Brendan and I came to you with our, you know, our band, we'd be waiting a year to get No, that? not a precision. Oh. We're around four to five months, maybe. We're trying to bring that down to three to four. But the average in the industry is probably around eight. We're able to rise above that because we have a lot of capacity. Most record plants don't have 35 record presses. In fact, we're the largest vinyl record pressing plant in North America. So that helps. But still, people are coming to us saying we need more capacity. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Making It in Ontario. This has been an incredible year for advanced manufacturing in the province, and we thought this conversation in particular illustrates what we've learned. This will be the final episode of 2022, and we are ending the year with a really cool story. Precision Record Pressing is a new twist on a classic product, the vinyl record, and they're using new advanced machinery to manufacture them. Now, I have Brendan here with me today to help me put into words how the conversation with Precision Record Pressing illustrates some of the other themes we've explored this year. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, well, first and foremost, it illustrates that innovative manufacturers are, are sometimes hiding in plain sight. Precision Record Pressing has entire bus ads in Burlington and a facility that's visible from the QEW. But how many people even those in manufacturing know that Burlington is home to perhaps the largest vinyl record manufacturing facility in North America. Uh, second, there's new blood coming into manufacturing. Companies like Precision Record Pressing have a young and diverse leadership and workforce and are you know, interesting because they're not locked into one particular way of doing things because there hasn't been a legacy of vinyl record manufacturing in Southern Ontario. So they've done things their own way and proved that you can recruit a young workforce, get them up and running in a relatively short period of time if you make good decisions and invest properly. And third, uh, lots of convergence between industries. In Precision Record Pressing's case, it's that convergence between visual art and music and advanced manufacturing, all to satisfy a growing demand for vinyl records in North America. In other cases, we're seeing that convergence between artificial intelligence in manufacturing or life sciences in manufacturing or connectivity in manufacturing. Well said, Brendan. So we're closing out this year with a really cool story of precision record pressing and a really cool guy, Paul Miller, who's a really interesting, I guess you could say, serial entrepreneur, wouldn't you say, Brendan? Yeah, and you, you know we're in good company when... Uh, you're sitting across from someone like Paul, who was at the same Sun concert in an abandoned power plant uh, uh, that I was a couple years ago. So uh, really had a good time with this one, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And so this is how we're going to be ending the year. But of course, in 2023, we're going to be opening with an episode that is out of this world. The first episode of Making It in Ontario in January will feature the CEO of one of, if not the most advanced manufacturer in the province. Yeah, and maybe uh, maybe some other friends. And uh, I just have to say how much we're looking forward to seeing everyone in 2023 at EDCO, uh, at the Mayor's meetings, at BEV In-Depth in Sudbury. Shout out to Sudbury, which may or may not come up in this particular episode. Um, and so without further ado, let's uh, let's chat with Paul. And today, 
We are in a really cool new place. I've got Brendan here. Brendan, say hello. Hello. And we've also got a new friend. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Paul Miller, Senior VP of Sales at Precision Record Pressing, a vinyl record manufacturing plant in Burlington and Oakville. That's right. We're talking vinyl today. And yes, it is very advanced. We just got a tour. Brendan, I think you can agree that was a pretty advanced uh, manufacturing facility, no? It's good stuff. And, and I just like to say this is the first time in doing this job that we've had a discussion and actually met someone who was also at, in 2016, in June 2016, at the Sun concert at the Hearn Generating Station at the Illuminato Festival. Uh, so that's pretty cool. So yeah. it's, it's great getting out here and uh, meeting this uh, great cast of characters that, okay. yeah, if, that if, are if, making things in Ontario. Yep. Yeah. If you were at that show and you had the same experience I did, like we're like-minded, it's, that was a good way to start I it like off. It. I like it. Awesome. So, Precision Record Pressing. Tell us a little bit about what you make here. Well, you might be surprised to hear we make records. Um, Shocked. Yes. <laughs> so vinyl, we, we make vinyl records. Now, the company does all the formats, 12-inch, 7-inch, 10-inch. We'll get into this in a bit, but we do some off-site work as well. Uh, here... We're manufacturing 12-inch vinyl records. At our second location down the street, that's where everything is being packaged together and shipped out. So this is one half of the operation. So before we flick the mics on, there was actually quite a lively conversation, which we are now going to try to recreate. Let's, let's just quickly talk about vinyl, because, I mean, before we flick the, the mics on, you guys were saying that for the past 40 years, uh, vinyl, the technology, was kind of stuck. Is that what you were saying? It was... Yeah, I said it was stuck for decades, and all in recent history became unstuck. Although it, there's an argument to make that it's getting sticky again, but let's go step by step here. So the general history of vinyl manufacturing, in a nutshell, is that you had an industry that was thriving throughout the 60s and 70s. Coming into the 1980s, it took a real downturn as cassettes and then eventually CDs put vinyl further into the background. So they stopped innovating. There was no need to make new vinyl record presses because no one was buying them, or relatively few. There were still some record plants that held on to the equipment because they believed in it, or maybe they were just a little bit lazy at totally remodeling everything and so said, okay, it can exist in the corner for a while and pump out relatively few records to what we used to make. But as I mentioned, there wasn't enough interest in the product to continue making all of the necessary equipment to produce vinyl records, to manufacture them. That was the case for around 35 years or so. And that ended up changing when um, GZ Media, who's our parent company, had the idea to try and engineer new vinyl record presses based on the way that uh, some machines that they had operated and they worked with this engineering plant in France, collaborated to make the first new record presses in about 35 years. And since then, there's been other companies who have also uh, embarked in making new record presses as the industry has gained popularity over the years. So now we're in an environment that's much different than it was over the last 30 years or so, where there are new record presses, and that's really changed a lot of things. Because I got to say, walking through your shop, I mean, Brendan and I are no rookies to seeing manufacturing floors. That looked very bright, very modern. Mm. The machines you had were, were they, they seem to be Industry 4.0 ready. Mm. It's interesting that, that there's that word again, innovation. Because there was a loss of interest, people stopped innovating the tools to make them. 
Yeah. What can you tell me about the tools you're using and the tools that we just saw on your shop floor? Yeah. Well, the core technology of vinyl record pressing hasn't changed dramatically since you know, the 50s, 60s. So what has changed is, you know, PLC engineering and some automation around making things more effective and efficient, right? So what, what you're looking at are record presses that were designed, engineered, manufactured, you know, in the last, you know, I guess five to 10 years. And it's a combination of manual and automatic record presses, both capable of producing different types of records. We can talk about that in a bit. But those machines, yeah, they're all new. And I think I keep coming back to that because maybe unlike other industries, like that still is, is somewhat of a novel thing. It, it really was the case that record pressing plants were using, you know, old, recycled, you know, cannibalized and rebuilt Frankenstein monster machines that were cranky and wearing down because they were 30, 40 years old. The techs who were used to servicing them were no longer around. I mean, it was really a difficult part of the industry, especially in the mid-2000s when record pressing started to gain popularity again. And so, like, this plant and, you know, others like it, sort of like a newer chapter in the industry that started around 2015, 2016, where it became possible to manufacture records on presses that, you know, were younger than you. <laughs> why did record pressing or why did vinyl gain popularity? How did this happen? What was behind that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of theories out there. None of them perfectly proven. I have mine. I think that as music went further and further in the direction of being digital, you know, first CDs became less interesting. I think people were really maybe wondering why the escalating prices were really justified for the smaller piece of plastic, you know. Napster, LimeWire, these things came into the picture that really put that into focus. People could now get these things at zero cost. The industry figured out how to monetize that. So, you know, first you then had Apple Music and things, I think, called like iTunes back then, where you could buy digital music for 99 cents a song. Then came streaming services, right, which are a subscription service. But as you go further and further into that, there's the absence of something physical that represents the music was getting further from, from, from view. And so I think vinyl represented a pendulum swing that went as far in the opposite direction as possible to come back to something large, physical, classic, you know, in air quotes that I think people really identified with. Like, I know the way I listen and buy music is I listen to music on streaming sites, but if I love something, I need to have it. I need to have it on vinyl. It, to me, it feels like the real physical document of the music, you know? And I think vinyl does that better than CD or cassette, in my opinion. Do you have an opinion on the loudness wars? Well, I think that the loudness wars, like for people that don't know, that was in the 90s, really, right? When that was a, a, a real buzz term? Yeah. Metallica and things like that? Yeah, and yeah. Where people, audio mastering engineers, re responding to the you know desires from bands and record labels to create the loudest masters possible to crush the next person on the radio. With zero dynamic range. Zero dynamic like range, totally brick-walled. I mean, the, the, the idea back then was, you know, if my song plays after yours and I'm louder than you, then... I win. I win the loudness war. And really, I think it's, it's, it, it kind of touches on the same thing that I was referencing about vinyl, where it's like, what is the ultimate document? You know, what is the one that really stands out that feels the most significant? So I think that there was a, that was a direction for a while to come up with the loudest music possible. 
And the effect of that is that you end up clipping, you know, a lot of the information on the top and the bottom end. Now you're talking my language. <laughs> of course, I see, I see your <laughs> setup here. I can understand. So, you know, what, what you're gaining in audio, you're losing in loudness, you're losing in clarity. Yeah. And especially with vinyl, which is a physical format, there's a container, there's a limitation. I think that it, it really feels pronounced to me on vinyl where you have the, where you have the ability to, to, you know, to achieve such a high dynamic range and you're, 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 you're kneecapping it. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. No. And, and in fact, for, for anyone listening, I actually did this experiment where I had the CD of Abbey Road and then I had the vinyl of Abbey Road, both running into the same stereo and I switched inputs back and forth. Once I adjusted ah. for the volume yeah. difference, because yes, the CD was louder, but the vinyl, once I turned the volume up to match the CD and I had my headphones on, the instruments, same volume, but the instruments just sounded further away. Hmm. The room sounded bigger. I felt like I wasn't just, you know, six inches away from their amps. I felt like I, I was in the room. It, yeah. it, it's a very subjective. Yeah. I'm probably using a bunch of buzzwords here, but yeah. That's the thing that people point to vinyl for, right? To say, like, it has the ability to capture this, like, more environmental kind of warm sound. Yeah. But, but, but speaking of loudness, too, I mean, how, how it works in the industry is that when you provide a digital audio master to a cutting engineer, and by the way, that's the cutting engineer is the first person making contact with your music, cutting it onto a physical surface. That's where it's actually becoming an analog disc, right? So you cut the master, and then you... Well, we can talk about the other phases, but then you go ahead and electroplate and then manufacture. But so much of the fidelity, I mean, really all of it, all of the sonic qualities of the audio are really contained in that cut, right? Yeah. So what, what the cutting engineer does is that they will look at your program, so your music, right? Specifically the side. They'll look at how long it is. So 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and the other parameters of the audio and make a decision about how loud it should be, which is how wide, what the groove depth is, you know, to determine what the best volume should be so that you avoid incurring distortion, right? So you can crank it up as loud as you want before you give it to us. We're still gonna find the audio level, the volume, that, is, that, that provides what we would call the safest cut because we don't wanna crank up the volume as high as possible, make the widest groove possible, cut it hot and have it distort all over the place. That seems to kind of defeat the purpose. However, if you're a death metal band, maybe you're happy with that. So, you know, because you really want something crushing. So if someone comes to us and says, give me a loud cut, then we'll favor volume over distortion. Otherwise, we pick the Goldilocks zone as loud as possible without incurring distortion. How did you get into the record pressing game? <laughs> I'm sure there was a time when you weren't pressing records um, and around the Precision opened in 2015 in yeah. the GTA? Yeah, so my story is that, well, this sounds like it'll be a long story, but, you know, I'll... Uh, we got the room, go for it. Okay, okay. Well, I was going to say, it started with me in high school, which is that I met a cousin of mine who was working... Well, he, he had a company called Design Infinity that was a broker for CD pressing. And I didn't have so much access to him as a kid but when I realized when I was in high school this is what my cousin did I just thought it was the coolest thing I mean I was in bands I loved music so I managed to get a co-op job right job in air quotes at Design Infinity so that I was doing some free work there you know and 
then eventually I started working part-time there and then full-time. So I was working in CD manufacturing, but on the broker side, meaning that we weren't manufacturing it ourselves. We were a middle people for the process. I was really interested in vinyl personally, and I think it maybe just comes from, well, it comes from collecting, really, especially if you're into, you know, punk rock like I was, you're into bands like The Clash, all the music that they cite, very findable on vinyl. It just seems like it fits. I don't know why. Anyway, it was just a personal interest of mine. So I was pushing for Design Infinity to get more into the vinyl side of things, and they said, well, we don't see much interest, but if this makes you happy and, you know, maybe just give it a go, see, see what it's like. So minimum success doing that. There, there, at the time, there was one vinyl manufacturing plant in Canada, so we started brokering through them. To speed up a little bit, that company went under. I started my own company called Samo, where we were doing the same thing. We were a broker for vinyl pressing with that same cousin, actually. It was just him and I. We started to focus more on vinyl, and eventually there were no record pressing plants in Canada, and we were brokering through a record pressing plant called Rainbow Records in California, a very storied record plant who had been around for 60 or 70 years. We became a bit of an access point for Canadian bands to get vinyl made relatively cost-effectively because we would consolidate ship all the records that we were making from California into Toronto. When I heard that this record plant was starting in 2015 or so, um, I heard through like a media interview that Jerry, one of the founders, gave. I sort of threw myself in front of it to, to uh, have conversations with the founders to you know, see what part I might be able to play in that. And that's, that's how it happened. This is a Czech-owned company or? So, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a bit of the history of Precision. So it, it, starts, it starts with GZ Media, who is a Czech record plant. They've also been around for 70 or 80 years. And they became one of the largest record pressing plants in the world. Around the time that vinyl started to become more popular again, in about 2007, 2008, there were some brokers in the States who began working with GZ. So GZ started to see a lot of the, you know, a lot of accelerated interest coming from the States. And they thought to themselves, maybe there's more participation we can have in the North American market. So they were just keeping their eyes open. Meanwhile, in Burlington, where we are now, there is a, um, a music distributor called Isotope. And Isotope, made up of uh, Jerry McGee and Rob Shepard, those guys had the idea to try and look around for some old record presses that they could buy and repurpose and, you know, all the sort of like old cranky record presses we were talking about before. They wanted to try their hand at that game. And at that time, it was kind of crazy, you know, that you would find through the grapevine that some seven presses were found in some garage in Mexico and then suddenly someone else outbid you and they were gone. It was really frustrating trying to buy record presses at this time when there was only so much supply and escalating demand. They heard that GZ was manufacturing new record presses only for their own purposes, not for the general public. And so they reached out to them and said, hey, we're interested in purchasing some of these. And GZ thought, no, no, get lost. You know, this is, we're making this for ourselves. We're not trying to have everyone else start record plants. And then thought, okay, well, there's all this activity in North America. We're interested. These guys seem serious. They're from Burlington. Where's that? It's in Canada. Do we care about Canada? Okay, well, look, it's close to New York. It's close to other music hotspots and distribution. Maybe that's as good as a, a location as any. 
And that's why the record pressing plant started in Burlington, right? Not for any particular strategic reason other than the fact that that's where the sort of home base was. So GZ and Isotope agreed on a 50-50 venture to start the company. And it was incorporated, I believe, in 2015. We were building the vinyl manufacturing plant here uh, through 2016. And then we ended up pressing our first records in February of 2017. So, Paul, let's get technical here. So let's say I'm a band. Brendan and I are a band. And we've just recorded a, a file. We've got So we've got a sound file here. It's probably going to be a WAV file. But it's going to be That's delayed, right. Right? Okay. So... I've now handed you the USB stick. It's really good. Oh, it's awesome. It's really yeah. good. Is it really good? Yeah, you yeah, like yeah. it? Le- yeah. Leading edge stuff. <laughs> oh, You've yeah. never heard anything like this before. <laughs> oh, yeah. Very advanced. It's been, it was a man, very advanced manufactured album. So now it's in your hands. What's next? What happens to it? Okay. There's two streams, audio and artwork. We're a full production, full product plant, so we make everything. We have a print shop, which is in Toronto, uh, making single jackets, gatefolds, inner sleeves, etc. right? Let's put the art for aside for a moment. Let's travel down the audio stream. So yes. you give us the pre-mastered WAV file, high-resolution file. We send it to our cutting studio located uh, in GZ. So <laughs> sorry I'm going around in a bit of a circle here, but it's let me good. actually just say that when we started the record pressing plant, we thought, boy, making records is really hard. Why don't we actually try and engage ourselves fully in the you know real feat of being able to make high quality vinyl record press uh, high high quality vinyl records and then let's utilize GZ who have all this experience decades worth of cutting and electroplating basically all of the sort of setup materials and setup processes and that will be our workflow right and we've maintained that to this date it's worked very well for us so the audio file goes to the cutting studio as I mentioned what they'll do is that they'll take a look at the waveform they will make some educated decisions using some custom software that they've built that will make a topographical map of how that uh, groove will be cut so they can essentially see it, make their adjustments, make some decisions around audio level, i.e. the volume, and begin cutting. Now the process is maybe not as some people think. You don't cut a double-sided disc, we'll cut two discs. GZ uses a process called DMM, Direct Metal Mastering. This is a method of cutting a master. So we'll have two cut masters, one for side A, one for side B. And then what we need to do is electroplate it. This is a little complicated, so I'll try and make it simple. And you can ask me questions to push me further if you like. The process of electroplating will take that cut master, will form a layer of nickel on top of it, so that when you peel it off, you get the inverse. So our master has grooves cut into it, but we need ridges that are poking out. So if we can electroform it to pull away this top layer, this top nickel layer, then we've essentially done that. We've made a reversed cast of that master. Does that make sense? It does. I would love to know, like, how, geek out. Tell me a little, tell me about that process as much as, much as you can. Sure, sure. Okay. So what happens is that there is a, this, this cut master disc, and in this case, when we're cutting DMM, it's an aluminum disc surface with copper. We're cutting into a copper layer. That gets submerged into a tank with a nickel sulfamate solution. So this is nickel. It comes from you know, Sudbury as well as uh, you know, other places in the world, right? And um, Shout out to our friends in Sudbury. That's right. Sudbury, shout out. Northern Ontario, we hear you. 
Thank you for all the nickel. Um, <laughs> and when you, when you introduce amperage, electricity, and a certain degree of heat, you know, so you have your electrical and, you know, temperature inputs, what happens is that the nickel solution starts to bind to the copper surface. And when you leave that in there for two hours or so at minimum, you can then pull that plate out and then separate it and then peel it away. And now what you have is you have your master, which is a positive, and then you have what's called a stamper, which is a negative. And that negative, that stamper, has the grooves protruding outward, right? Because it's been pulled away. The nickel has formed into the voids of the master, right? Which is why when you pull it off, then it shows ridges instead of grooves. Uh, that can be used on press because on a record press, what you do is you have your stamper for side A, which is your negative that has the music sort of protruding instead of cut in, and you have your stamper for side B. That gets affixed to the top and the bottom of the press, right? So for instance, you know, side A up top facing down, side B on the bottom facing up. Then you take melted, extruded polyvinyl chloride material that we call compound. So you, 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 you melt the PVC compound into what we call a puck, which looks like a hockey puck. Uh, again, shout out to Sudbury. I'm sure they'll appreciate that. <laughs> um, and uh, you put that in the mold. And when you close the mold and you introduce steam to, to uh, heat, heat up and expand and melt the puck, and then you introduce cold water to cool it down and solidify it, well, what you have when the mold's open is a pressed record that's now double-sided, right? Because maybe this is obvious, but what's happening is that the stampers have the music inverted and they're pressing into the puck, which is how the music gets impressed into the disc. And that's why we call it pressing. So there, you have your pressed record. We even touched the artwork side of things, but that's maybe a little more straightforward. I don't know if the artwork is straightforward. You're right, it's I, I mean, not. It's, pretty, it, 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 it's pretty interesting in that vinyl, more so than any other medium that I can think of is, well, it's a medium for both sonic art for sound and for visual art and for however many years that we had condensed that into cassette tapes and cds and then digital files i think we lost some of that and and i think that might be a really important part for a lot of people the the yeah. the, the the sonic and the visual component of a uh whether it's the jacket whether it's some of the really the the multicolored vinyl that we saw being made here mm -hmm. agree or disagree or oh for sure for sure i mean i think it's certainly the such a prominent part of the package it's first of all the first thing you see when you are handling the final product the, the, the only reason i say it's more straightforward is because the processes used to manufacture those materials are pretty commonplace. We use die cutters, paper cutters, folder gluers to put the jackets and the you know inner sleeves and everything into into shape, right? I know that our graphics manager would strongly disagree with me saying it's straightforward <laughs> because there's 105 <laughs> things that can go wrong and our graphics team will review all of the art files to make sure it prints professionally and point out any potential issues and there's a lot of back and forth that can happen there, not always but can. But, uh, you know, for, 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 for us, when I was doing SEMO, which, by the way, I started in 2002, so I kind of saw a lot of stuff because vinyl was still relatively quiet compared to where it is now. 
in around 2010, um, I came across a machine called a Winkler, which is a record jacket manufacturing machine that was engineered and produced in 1978 in West Germany, it says. And we bought that for like 10K. It was this kind of ratty machine that was really one of a kind. It can die cut, score, fold and glue record jackets in a single production line. So it's a pretty unique, interesting machine. So I started a second company around that called RJC, the Record Jacket Corporation. I thought it would be kind of cool to give it a real unsubtle title. <laughs> it's a factory. We make record jackets. Um, and we're incorporated. And we're incorporated, by the way. <laughs> so um, that was something else that I was able to bring into the fold when we started Precision because we already had a kind of kernel of a, a printing operation there, right? Where's the Winkler now? It's still chugging. Still chugging right now. Some days there's more chug than others. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it, it, it's still in operation. But now we're looking at, at uh, and we've just put a deposit down for a new record jacket manufacturing machine, which is fairly new in terms of its existence. You know, I think uh, maybe only in the last year were those being made again, specifically built and designed to fold and glue record jackets. Not in West Germany, though. No, not West Germany. No, maybe Wisconsin or something. <laughs> is, uh, West Wisconsin. Oh, there you go. Yes, that's right. Is that what happens in Oakville? No, so our, our operation is kind of spread out. I mean, what, what happened was that we started with this place, and we had 10 record presses to start with in February of 2017, making 20,000 records a day, and uh, a month, excuse me. But that was because that's where the sales started, right? So we had these 10 record presses, and over the course of the following years, there was more and more interest, and we were commissioning more record presses from GZ. So we continued to add them. By the way, back when we started, the only record press that GZ was capable of remanufacturing was what's called a manual record press. And you guys saw those when you were on tour out, out there, I assume. And that's where you take the puck and then you put it into the press by hand. Of course, there's a light curtain there, so your hand doesn't get pressed into Phil Collins or whatever. <laughs> um, and, um, and then you press a button to close the molds. You then pull the record off the mold and then put it on a trimmer so that it's nice and round, et cetera, right? All that sort of like very tactile interaction. GZ, several years later, they started making automatic record presses, which are faster. They can make around 800 records in a shift compared to about 500 for the manuals, right? So then we started adding those because now that was a possibility. Interest kept getting greater and greater. Then we get into the pandemic and things really sort of skyrocket and we keep adding presses and then we have no more room for our packaging, our shipping and our warehousing. Wait, you got busier during the pandemic? Yeah. Wow. I know. <laughs> People staying at home, cranking tunes. <laughs> well, that's so the true. thing, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. No, I mean, the, the industry took a different shape over the pandemic, but I'll come back to that in a second. So we basically evicted packaging, shipping, and warehousing, and moved it to a location nearby in Oakville, but it's a 10-minute drive from here. And that's where the sleeving, packaging, et cetera, all that stuff occurs. So we, we have those two locations. Um, and all the printing takes place, well, the manufacturing of printing takes place in Toronto, where our sales, close to where our sales office is. We have four locations. So as I mentioned, in February of 2017, with our 10 record presses, we were making around 20,000 a month. The industry kept heating up. So we kept adding more record presses and we thought that we were actually getting to a, like a peak 
that maybe we would stop it. Maybe we would cool off adding new record presses every couple of months or so uh, until the pandemic hit. And there was definitely a moment there where we were sort of looking at our watch, wondering when it would all expire, because do people want final records in the middle of a global health crisis? Like, you know, I, I didn't predict the answer would be yes, but it exploded. And like you were saying, that people are at home, they can't go out to shows, they can't do the things they normally do to interact with music in a live setting, so they really turn to vinyl records. And it sent the industry into another hyperdrive. That caused us to add more record presses and maximize every square inch out there so that we could fill it with as many presses as we could hold. So now we're up to 35 record presses, making 75,000 units a day. So the industry and our plant has changed radically in the last, you know, six years or so. That is impressive. And I noticed on, on the tour there, you had a, a large bin that was there for, uh, to, to recycle a lot yeah. of the, so you, you also recycle a lot of your materials too, right? Yeah, it's a common thing in the record pressing industry where you have your virgin compound, your PVC material, you press records from it, and there's scrap in the process. There are defective records that the operator can spot visually. There are other records that are rejected in the audio control room. And when you take those records, you punch out the center label because you don't want you know, bits of paper circulating through repurposed compound. You can regrind it, and that's what we call it. We call it regrind. And that's a really common thing for record pressing plants to use. And there's no audio quality impact. I mean, maybe this is something that can be hotly debated on, you know, internet forums. But for us, we believe that there's no audio quality impact. So we use a mixture of regrind and virgin to produce our records. That's excellent. I'm probably going to say this scientific statement wrong where it's like there's no uh, better indicator of a theory's accuracy than its predictive ability. Did I say that right? Close enough. <laughs> okay, cool. So one thing, Brendan, I, I think you and I can agree that when a company is, uh, is working in a particularly, shall we say, cool, they're making a cool product, working in a cool industry, we've noticed that they tend to have a more diverse workforce. They tend to have a younger workforce. They tend to have uh, less trouble finding employees. After our tour, I think Brendan, you'll agree that there was a, a fair bit of age and cultural diversity on your shop on the shop floor we just saw. And if we're to believe our theory that the cooler the product, the more you'll be able to attract a better, more diverse workforce. Would you think that is there any truth to that? I, I mean, we certainly saw a younger than average workforce here, and in a similar vein to our friends at Yorkville, say on more heavy metal shirts than uh, than <laughs> yeah. at most plants we uh, we tour. It's a Slayer friendly environment. I would say. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So I, I know before we turn the mics on, we were talking about your HR and your hiring practices, and I know that you have. I know that's not necessarily your bailiwick, but I do. I did want to mention it. I want to put it on on the record that you know. You've, you've seemed to have had some success in that. What can you tell us about that? You could say that uh, a lot of record pressing plants in the past sort of relied on this concept that you need the older generation, you know, and maybe that's code for 
uh, you know, a white male of a certain age, <laughs> to have the industry knowledge to be able to pass that down from generation to generation, from plant to plant, necessarily you then end up with a pool of candidates that you know, look the same. Is it necessary to have you know, veterans uh, who have all of the decades of experience making records, pressing vinyl records at your shop? I mean, I don't want to denigrate them at all. There's obviously a tremendous value in having people with that skill set. But what we've learned, especially as we've expanded, is that it's not a mandatory ingredient, that you can actually hire from a pool of people who don't necessarily have manufacturing experience, specifically not vinyl record manufacturing experience, which is just way too specific for the general hiring pool of candidates, right? And that through the proper training and education, they can be really well-performing, highly-performing operators in about four to six months. So it really opens things up and you realize that you can hire from a much broader pool. It has actually been a challenge for us to maintain the you know, clip of filling positions that we need to as we're expanding. And that's not unique to Precision. I mean, everyone has been having a harder time making sure that they can hire enough people in all kinds of industries, maybe especially manufacturing. And that's had its positive impact too. That means that we are broadening our search and making sure that we are reaching out to all kinds of communities to stay on top of the hiring needs of the plant, right? So I think that that's probably had a, a, a positive effect. Do you ever do a job fair at, at, at like a heavy metal concert or at a, <laughs> or at a big festival or something? So. That's a good idea, actually. <laughs> you and Yorkville could team up and uh... actually, yeah. You know, I... I, I, I don't see a lot of corporate job booths at, uh, you know, Iced Earth shows or, or whatever. Um, I shouldn't have picked them. I think that guy was at the January 6th riot. Anyway, it, it, it insert a different heavy metal band there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we've gone to lengths to reach out to the community. We've even had ads plastered on the sides of buses traveling through Burlington and Oakville, you know, so... At one moment, you see the advertisement for a Michael Bay movie on the side of a bus, and then another bus goes by, and it says, hey, work at Precision. So we, we, we've done as much as possible to attract people, including always thinking about what the compensation levels are like, what programs we can add to it, and things of that nature. Back to the plant and some of the technology. and I mean, it's really interesting. You, you have a series of automatic presses. You have a series of manual presses. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's purposeful. Um, yes. What do the manual presses do that the automatic presses can't? Or what do you use them for that you wouldn't use an automatic press for? Yeah, well put. I mean, we were sort of lucky in the sense that GZ had the capability of making manual presses first and only. So that's what we started with because that's what, what was available to us. The manual record presses require a lot more uh, work from the operator than an automatic press does, but it has its benefits. First of all, on a manual press, because there's more variability due to the human interaction that's involved, every record is closely inspected. You, you, you probably saw as you were out there, a record is pressed, it's put on the trimming station, a knife goes up to cut the flash, and then an operator will pick it up and look at both sides, studying it for visual defects. That's a good thing to start with compared to an automatic press that is more consistent and doesn't require as much record-by-record record inspection, although, of course, every record gets quality controlled to an extent. So that's number one. The second thing, and 
arguably even as important or more important is the type of records you can make on a manual press that you cannot on an auto. Now to describe that, maybe it's best to get a better idea of how the autos work. So with an automatic press, you have your polyvinyl chloride, your PVC compound material. It's sucked up through a you know, pneumatic tube and is dropped into what's called the hopper. And the hopper essentially is like a waiting room. Nothing much is happening there. It's just a more pared down amount of compound required to fulfill the order. Bit by bit, compound is going into what's called the extruder, which melts the material and dispenses a puck. So you also have your center labels, which is the you know, circular artwork that you see on both sides of a record. So what the automatic press can do is that it will take the puck by carriage and it will take the center labels also by carriage or robotic arm, whatever you want to call it, and place them into position so that you have a label facing down on the bottom, then a puck in the middle, then a label facing up on the top, and it will press the record. Okay, well, that's great. Everything has been taken care of for you, as opposed to the manual press where you're taking the puck by hand, you're taking the center labels by hand, you're making your record sandwich, and you're putting it into the press and pressing a button, okay? So those are kind of the two features of the manual and the auto, right? The auto does it all for you. Now with the manual, because there's that human intervention before you actually press the record, that gives you the ability to manipulate the puck. So you can do crazy, weird, interesting things to it. So I can take the puck now that I'm holding by hand with a gloved hand because it's hot and I can submerge it in some raw compound and smush it around, sort of make something that looks like sprinkles on a donut and then put it into the press. And that's what's called a splatter record, if you've ever seen that or heard of that. It looks like comets shooting out from the center. It's quite beautiful. The automatic press can't do that because everything is just moving in sequence. The puck is extruded, the record is pressed, and you can't get involved in the middle of that to make other decisions. So to answer your question, you can make the effect records two and three color on the manuals and you can't do those on the autos. The autos are capable of, of making black vinyl or any single color with, with, with some limited exceptions, but that's the difference. So it's cool that we have both because it means that we can offer everything. We can do black, we can do single color, we can do splatter, half and half, A side, B side, which looks like tie dye. You know, you take two different pucks that are different colors, put them on top of each other, press the record, right? That's what makes that tie dye effect. That's only possible on the manuals. And that goes back to that it's there's a sonic and a visual element to the art that's on on the record and i imagine there are some who may pay a premium for a multicolored or a splatter or a well-designed record yeah well what's what's popular in the industry is to make what we call variants which maybe now that we're in this pandemic or post-pandemic environment, that word has a different context. For in, in vinyl <laughs> record circles, it's a good thing. Um, it's not Omicron B5 yeah. or whatever. So variance essentially means that you've got a record pressing project, but it's split up into different colors or different effects, right? So you have 500 records, you might do 250 on black, 250 on splatter, right? With, with, with a splatter color. And then you can sell them in different ways, right? You can put the splatter ones up for pre-order, generate more excitement before the album comes out, things of that nature, right? It gives artists and bands more opportunity, more, more you know, creative outputs, first of all. 
and also different ways to sell the record. Maybe they'll take only one particular variant on tour with them where you can only get it when you see the band. So people have been using that concept to their advantage for quite some time. Where are the main markets for the record? Canada, the United yeah. States? Europe. Europe. So you're from Burlington and yeah. Oakville. Yeah. You're exporting to the world? Or? Yeah, I, 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 most of our record, uh, well, most of the records are within North America, but it's common for us to work with record labels that have European distribution. So we end up shipping some records out there necessarily. We also press records with our parent company, GZ. So we maintain some capacity there. That's where we do our seven inches and 10 inches as well. So that's how we can do all the formats. If someone is doing a record and 100% of it needs to go to France, then we'll press it at GZ and ship it within Europe so that it's cheaper and faster. But yes, m most of the records are within North America. So we love everything we've seen. What, uh, what are you excited about that uh, you're working on right now? What's, what's coming out next that's, uh, that, that's interesting? So Precision is not the only company that GZ has a relationship or a stake in in North America. There's also Memphis Record Pressing, which uh, GZ became a partner in sometime after they started Precision. And right now we're really responding to the demand out in the market, right? So a lot of our thoughts are around how to add more presses, how to create more capacity for the industry, because the pandemic has like exacerbated the turnaround problem again that maybe you've heard about with vinyl. It seems to dog it, you know? First, there weren't enough record pressing plants in existence when vinyl became popular again because there were no new presses. So everyone was trading around the old stuff. There's only so many times you can do that. So the turnarounds became quite long. That was solved relatively when new plants like Precision came on board. So it started to become a little more manageable again. You could get records made in three or four months. The pandemic just exploded it all over again. Arguably made it worse, really. Turnarounds in the industry can be as long as a year to get records made. That's for real. A hundred records could take you one year to get, right? So if Brendan and I came to you with our, you know, our band, we'd be waiting a year to get No, that? not a precision. Oh. We're around four to five months, maybe. We're trying to bring that down to three to four. But the average in the industry is probably around eight. We're able to rise above that because we have a lot of capacity. Most record plants don't have 35 record presses. In fact, we're the largest vinyl record pressing plant in North America. So that helps. But still, people are coming to us saying we need more capacity. Indie labels, major labels, both of them. So aside from Precision and Memphis, we also started another record pressing plant called Nashville Record Pressing in Nashville. And that's now the third company as part of the GZ North America group. So they've now been going through the same treadmill Precision was on, adding presses and shifts every couple of months. And they've been doing actually really well with that. So the next year is really about catching up to the demand. We've sort of scrutinized our floor plans here, and we thought maybe we can fit more record presses in, in 2023. So we're, we're, we're debating that, figuring out how to do that. Meanwhile, our partners, our, our sister plants, are also adding capacity. I, and that's the thing I'm excited about, because I would really love to restore some sanity to turnarounds in the industry. I mean, four to five months, to me, five months seems like a really long time. To the industry, it maybe seems like a beacon of light, but I really want to drive the turnarounds back down to like eight or 12 weeks like we know they can be. So it's a matter of adding equipment, but also adding printing capacity, 
adding compound capacity, all those things. And those are our big plans over the next year. We at the Trillium Network would love to help you with that in any way we can. Paul, this is great. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for the tour. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what's next. Thanks for showing interest in us and the industry. Really appreciate you guys coming down to talk to us today. It's advanced manufacturing. Thank you very much.